We're back. Welcome to another episode of Ideas Matter podcast. Uh, this time we're coming at you with State and Revolution by Lenin. So, uh, also apologies in advance uh, if I sound out of it because I just came back from a like 22-hour plane ride and I still have a bit of jet lag. So, if I sound like I don't have too many brain cells, it's because I don't. Um, but... Louis is a smart guy, so at least half of this podcast will probably be good. <laughs> I don't know about that, man. Um, you're doing very well for someone who's who's jet lagged and who who was doing quite a lot of heavy drinking. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to cut that out? <laughs> no, nah, that's cool. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> quite a lot of heavy drinking uh, on on your trip in Europe. Yeah. Um, but yeah, as Alex said, we're doing the state and revolution today, which I just I I loved it. I really enjoyed it. Last episode we read Machiavelli. And you loved that, and I thought it was so-so, and hmm. I feel like now, this week, the shoe is on the other foot. Yeah, I thought this one was... I I, I enjoyed it. I, I thought it was really in, enjoyable as, like, historical document, because this is pretty much a, a bit of historical background. I'm sure most people know who Lenin is. He was the leader of the Bolsheviks around the time of the Russian Revolution and kick-started the Soviet Union. But... Around the time he was writing this, it was after the February Revolution in 1917. So in Russia in 1917, there were two revolutions. There was the first one in 1917. Then Lenin starts writing this work after he comes back to Russia. Funnily enough, after the Germans uh, put him in a sealed train car and are like, all right, you're going home. <laughs> let's get the, let's get Russia out the war. We're going to send you back. Um but yeah, he starts writing this book, uh, short book, when he gets home on what you might call Marxist theory and revolutionary tactics. And in the last chapter, uh, not the last full chapter, but the last chapter proper of the work, it trails off after the first sentence because the October Revolution happened that the Bolsheviks led and then get into power so this is a lot of this work is lenin sort of talking through how he conceives revolution literally right before he pulls off a revolution yeah so in that sense this was like really interesting absolutely um but in the sense of i don't know like a work of political theory political philosophy i was a bit less impressed but we'll get into that during our discussion yeah, you were less convinced by some of the more um, perhaps normative aspects of, of, of the political theory. Mm. But yeah, we were just chatting to a guy before this podcast. <laughs> he made such a funny observation that like, as Alex just said, like he's writing this book about the relationship between a socialist revolution and the state. So what should workers do with the state once they seize it? Um, and it wasn't just theoretical, like he actually went and did it. Mm. He's writing about seizing the state and then literally as he's about to finish the book, well, the book didn't get finished because he did what he said he was going to do. So it's it's hugely interesting from the historical perspective. It's a real baller move. Yeah. <laughs> Greatest follow through in history was, was his way of putting it, which I thought was good. <laughs> um, but yeah, as Alex touched on, like Lenin, he was the leader of the Bolsheviks, which initially they were a faction within a broader socialist party in Russia. Uh, and then that split into two separate factions, the Mensheviks and the Bolsheviks. And the real point of contention between them and other socialists um, was whether or not they would be involved in the newly created Russian parliament. And so after the, the February Revolution, uh, the Mensheviks basically were elected to the Duma, the Russian parliament, and formed a coalition government with uh, the liberals, uh, the cadets. So they're sort of like classical liberals. And so throughout the text, Lenin refers to opportunists and philistines. And when he says opportunists, he's, re he's referring to these fake Marxists, these fake socialists who he thinks are betraying Marxist theory and, and the tenets of Marxism by basically taking up seats in this bourgeois institution and in some cases in Russia and in other places, taking on ministries and becoming part of the bourgeois capitalist state rather than engaging in revolution. So that's why he's writing this book. He wants to show, look, these socialists, particularly in Germany, the Social Democratic Party and the Mensheviks in Russia, they're betraying Marx because they're cooperating with this bourgeois this bourgeois machine, whereas in fact what Marx actually said 
was that we should have a violent revolution and that we should have a dictatorship of the proletariat to steward us from capitalism through socialism and then eventually into communism. So the text is interesting because it's what Lenin, how Lenin sees his own work is he sees it as being, here's why my interpretation of Marx is the correct one. So when you read it, it's filled with huge long quotes from Engels and then Marx, which I thought was quite interesting. I think he actually makes a very compelling argument that he does have a very good interpretation of Marx. But that's how he sees the purpose of his work. Mm. Yeah, th- that part was very interesting to me because f- fair enough that, you know, fair enough to suppose that Lenin was convinced on Marx. But his way of uh, demonstrating any of these points of contention between him and other socialist or social democratic thinkers uh, over points in, you know, Marxist tactics or what have you, uh, is he would just go to some uh, some excerpt from Marx or Len, uh, Marx or Engels, or e- even go to some like obscure letters that Marx wrote and sent to people. And I can't imagine how much digging around he had to do to f- actually find these quotes. But he would just present the quote from Marx or Engels, and that was it. It, it was kind of like, uh, here's what scripture says about this. Yeah, it does very much have that vibe of um, quoting Marx and quoting Engels in the same way that, yeah, a religious person might might quote their holy text. Mm. Um, I, a lot of Marxists are going to really hate our description of that, but I think that is at least epistemologically like the structure that the argument makes but you could I don't know you could also be charitable and just say well look like the purpose of the book is not to argue that Marx is correct it's to argue that Lenin has the correct interpretation of Marx Mm -hmm. and so it's sort of assumed that Marxism is correct in the reading of this book but of course you know it might very well not be um, and we can get into that but yeah he does assume that like if Marx said it then it is in some sense true or correct Mm -hmm. yeah um just as an aside, I the more I read this, the more I uh, we've been kind of alluding to this and growing this idea throughout the pod, even since the first episode uh, of you know the close link between the history of religion and religious thought in the West and political thought in the West. So you go back to some of our earlier episodes and we talk about the link between I don't know Protestantism and liberalism and whatnot, and I feel like this just convinced me even deeper of that. I know you said that Marxists aren't going to be happy about the uh, religion comparison, but this, I don't, it just felt deeply religious. There's, I, I, don't, I don't say that as like a criticism of religion. Mm. I, I just mean this as like an, uh, I found it very odd for something that's uh, straightforwardly secular to have this deep faith in it. Yeah. It's a very faith-based text as we'll get into a bit later when we talk about his idea of the state withering away mm. um, and the just the kind of weird leap he makes to get to that point. But anyway, yeah, let's let's, let's jump into the text. Yeah, I I think you you said once that um, like liberalism is sort of a secularized form of Protestantism, mm. and Marxism is a radical sect within liberalism. Yeah, which. I think is absolutely spot on. I really agree with that. But to sort of like, I think, yeah, the best way into that is to explain his main argument and then to explain the Marxist theory of history that's underpinning it. And then hopefully by that point, you start to see what we mean when we say that there's a religious tone or a religious structure of thought, not religious, Christian. There's a Christian structure of thought to to Marxism and, and it really comes out in Lenin. So, yeah, give me the give me the cliff notes like point of the book. Like, what's Lenin's main argument? Okay, so his main argument in terms of like what's going on politically and what to do is he's having a look around at the capitalist societies of his day, and he says, "Well, this uh, I'm, as followers of Marx, Lenin, and the people he's talking addressing in his text, he's, he's saying." Well, this we know that capitalism has to go. You know, this isn't good. You know, we need to uh, move beyond this stage in history. Uh, we'll get into the stages of history a bit later. But in order to get beyond this, well, you can't just do it through electoral means. 
capitalism and capitalists are just too powerful, too rich. Capitalism is too adaptable to be beaten by people just, you know, political campaigning in you know, representative de- democratic elections. You're never going to beat it that way. It's a powerful, you know, civilizational economic force, a civilizational social force. You just can't vote it out. So you need a revolution. You just need to overthrow the state institutions that we currently have, uh, all the political institutions that are capitalists, bourgeois, he says, to the bone which makes sense, you know, any society is going to have its institutions reflect its most powerful members or the governing class of that society. And from there, he says, well, this is going to have to be a violent revolution as well because, of course, the state is going to defend itself through violent means, so you need to persecute it through violent means. And once you've done that, you are going to have to get rid of those old state institutions because remember, they are irredeemably marked by being born and being used in a capitalist system. So they're always going to be geared towards capitalist or bourgeois ends. So you, you, you're going to have to completely get rid of the old institutions and bring in new institutions. You need to bring in worker institutions. You need to bring in uh, proletariat institutions. It causes the, the dictatorship of the proletariat. Right? right, yeah. So you go from a dictatorship of the bourgeoisie to a dictatorship of the proletariat. And... Well, how do you actually hold and maintain this? I think he's pretty realistic on a lot of these points so far. I see, honestly, a bit of Machiavelli in it, uh, and I mean that as a compliment. And at this point he says, well, you're going to have to get some sort of strong centralised component to your government and to your new, uh, new proletarian order because you're going to get bourgeois people who are going to fight back. You know, you're going to get some attempt at counter-revolution. You're going to get some attempt at people from other, uh, not people or other, uh, other capitalist governments, other bourgeois states are going to try to stop and crush the revolution. So you need to arm yourselves violently. You need to create a very strong, centralized, powerful structure within your state in order to f- consolidate your gains and fight off anyone else. You know, this is a deep matter of security. And once you've done that, then there's an economic component to decentralization as well. So you build the economic conditions to develop socialism and communism. At this point, this is where I find it gets really shaky and there's a weird jump. Once you've built the conditions for socialism, uh, then the state and the state institutions that you built up in the process of this revolution are going to wither away. Uh, The state will wither away. That's the very famous phrase. Once the state begins to wither away, then true, you know, full communism will begin to grow, which happens in stages and happens over time. But once you get to that point, it'll just start happening naturally. Yeah. So electoralism won't do. And as I said at the start, that's his criticism of the opportunists, the, the socialists or the quasi-fake socialists, in his words, uh, who are cooperating and, you know, running in bourgeois parliamentary elections. That, that simply won't do uh, for the reasons outlined by Alex. Um, but the reason why it won't do and the reason why you have to have a revolution, I think, is, is inextricably linked to his view of the state, uh, which is hence the name of the book, The State and Revolution, And so he begins the the book in an interesting way by basically saying Marxism has been distorted and the first major distortion uh, is this, quote, bourgeois democratic view that the state exists to reconcile class differences. Now, I think we kind of all implicitly hold this today. We sort of view the state, at least in its ideal form, in a liberal democracy as being this institution which is supposed to mediate conflict in society. Right. So, like, in the phrases that Lenin used, he'd say it's a power standing above society to maintain order. Exactly. Standing above. Above society, not of society. But Lenin's point, which is really Engel's point, is that actually, no, uh, the state doesn't arise to reconcile class differences. It arises because class differences are irreconcilable. The proletariat and the bourgeoisie are essentially at odds with one another. Their interests are not reconcilable. 
So the state exists to oppress the exploited class, and in this case, that is the proletarians. Mm, and it's, it's worth no- noting here that this goes historically, you know, go through the Marxist theory of history, and the state can't reconcile uh, noblemen, noblemen and serfs, and the state yes. can't reconcile uh, freemen and slaves. Exactly, exactly. So it's not necessarily that the state uh, serves the interests of the bourgeoisie, it serves the interests of the ruling class. And prior to the bourgeois capitalist revolution, that would have been the aristocrats. Mm. And, and they, you know, the merchants had their own sort of quasi-revolution against the aristocrats. But now the bourgeoisie, they're the ruling class and they've seized the state apparatus. And the state apparatus is used in their interests to exploit the proletarians. So we have all these delusions in Lenin's words about uh, the neutrality and of parliamentary systems and how they can enable workers to gain power and how we can mediate conflict between the classes and have a, you know, a a peaceful society which works in everyone's interest, in the national interest rather than the class interest. Lenin views all this as basically nonsense. Um, And he says, actually, what, what, what really is happening is when the state says that it's reconciling class differences, what it's actually doing is it's robbing the exploited class of the means and methods of fighting back. And I, this is one of my favourite points in the entire book because I, it really spoke to me actually, um, because Australia is a, is a really interesting example of a country that views the state as a mediator of class conflict. Throughout our history, Australia had a very strong and militant union movement, particularly in the early 20th century. And one of the ways that the newly federated Australian state responded to this was creating a system called wage arbitration. So unions would basically take employers to court and the minimum wage and the conditions of work were set in court. Um, that was this centralised wage arbitration system was dismantled by Hawke and Keating, ironically, who both came out of the union movement. Um, but a form of it was sort of put back in place with the Fair Work Commission. And even today, you know, you get unions representing employees at court who appeal to a judge. So the state sets up an institution who its explicit aim is to reconcile and mediate class conflict. But in reality, what this does is the laws of the Fair Work Commission say that you can't go on strike. You're not allowed to go on strike in Australia unless you can demonstrate that your union has argued in good faith with with your employer and you've reached a loggerheads in your negotiations. And then you have to apply to the Fair Work Commission for a legally protected industrial action. So it's incredibly hard to actually take a strike, which is one of the best means that the workers have to fight back is to withdraw their labour. So in this setting up of this institution to reconcile class differences, what it's actually doing is robbing the working class of their ability to fight back. So, I, look, I really thought he had a point <laughs> there. I thought that was spot on. Mm. Yeah, that's that's a very interesting example. I think I, I pretty much agree with it. You, you know, you might not endorse it in any... Even if you don't endorse Marxism in any normative sense, I find, like, analytically it makes a lot of sense. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Like the state is an apparatus which is controlled by not the mass of society, but a, a clique within society. And this is true of any any state. And it's going to reflect reflect their interests. But what I didn't agree with was, and I have this bolded in my notes, the state arises because of the irreconcilability of class differences. I don't Yeah, that was yeah, a bit suspicious. To the, me. the because of I don't think is correct. I don't think the state arrived. Like we didn't have a proletariat and a bourgeoisie, and then we had the state, <laughs> or we didn't have serfs or peasants and lords, and then the state. The state, it was more symbiotic, and they sort of developed together, mm-hmm. right? Um, I'm much more inclined towards the view put forth by Charles Tilly, which was pithily summarizes: the state made war, and the war made the state. Mm. So in the case of European nation states, they basically arose these, like, they created systems of taxation and raising revenue to fund wars, and that's how state apparatuses arose. So I agree with that. Yeah, yeah I think that's much more compelling than, like, because of the ir- irreconcilability of class differences. Mm-hmm. But then a, a Marxist might counter and say something like, uh, war arises because of one dominating class seeking to expand its power. Mm, that's true. But that, yeah. That could potentially be a counter-argument that, yeah, I actually was thinking that as I was saying it. I was like, oh, the Marxist does have a retort there. But I still, yeah, I don't agree with it too much, to be honest with you. Yeah, look, it just seems like he's overstating the point. Mm. Um, I agree generally with Marxists that you have to factor in class. 
into your sort of historical analysis. Mm -hmm. But to make it like the sole lens, I don't know, it seems to miss out a lot. Yeah. No, I, I agree completely. Yeah. Um, but look, yeah, so the theory of history, I think, is really like... Marx's theory of history is sort of like lingering underneath the surface all throughout this book, and it really is what gives Lenin his like theoretical coherence. And that's basically that like uh, history develops, or rather human societies develop, in order to develop the productive forces. And one of the reasons why I really liked this book is because of how clearly it was written. Like so often you pick up Marxist texts and it explains things by saying, oh, the modes of social relations reflect the modes of like economic relations which reflect the productive forces at their level of development and you're like well what 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 the fuck does that mean like <laughs> it's just explaining jargon in virtue of its relationship to another piece of jargon but without jargon it basically is that like societies develop social relationships um and they do so in the way that is best suited to developing the productive forces. Now, all that means is basically technology and the application of technology to producing things, to creating economic growth. So the whole sort of like legal, cultural superstructure that exists exists because in that point in time, given the level of technological development, those modes of social relationships are the most conducive to producing economic growth, right? And so you get a bourgeoisie, you get owners of capital and you get labourers because that is the most efficient and productive way to develop early industrial capitalism, right? And then Marx projects into the future and he says, well, there'll come a time when this division of society into two classes will actually no longer be the most efficient way to develop the productive forces. At that point, the most efficient way will be for the proletarians to take over and to seize the state. And Lenin says this throughout the text. He's like, when, you know, socialists, when workers take over, we need to develop the productive forces. Mm. There's this sort of, like, meme that uh, Marxists hate capitalism or Marxism is all about, like, t redistributing wealth but not about taking wealth. No, completely wrong. Marx liked capitalism because it was so good at making all this wealth but it will come a point where it will be counterproductive. You'll have, like, I don't know, investments in Bitcoin rather than stem cell research, for example, the system will reach a point where it's not developing the productive forces efficiently. At that point, having a socialist revolution and having state investment and state ownership will be more efficient than capitalism. And so that's really the Marxist theory of history that's going on underneath the surface is this is going to happen and then we're going to develop the productive forces better than the capitalists and we're going to create so much wealth that we will have the economic basis for socialism and eventually communism. Hmm. And you can kind of see that happening a bit, well, not the development of socialism and communism, but economic developments uh, kind of being supercharged under the guidance of a state with China. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. That's, that's the kind of case in point if you want to look at one currently. Yeah, definitely. Um, and Hobsbawm, who's uh, English, was, sorry, an English Marxist historian, he makes this point really well in his Age of Extremes, which is a history of the 20th century. He goes, look, in the 50s and the 60s, the economic growth rate of the Soviet Union was immense. It's crazy, yeah. Yeah, they were outstripping the United States. So there really was... I like mean, double digits every year. Yeah, double digits every year, exactly, like China. Mm. Um, so there was this belief, somewhat justified, that, wow, like maybe this is the way of the future and the Soviet Union will take over because they are just growing so quickly. So... Yeah, and you see that today with China, like double-digit growth rates, but still having a very heavy hand. Um, 40% of China's GDP is investment, uh, and, and that investment comes almost entirely from the state, right? So, yeah, they are really hewing still to at least that element of Marxism, whereas the state maintains control and direction over economic growth. Yeah, I think China's a good, a good example. To allude to the Mikhail Gorbachev Pizza Hut commercial, <laughs> China realised you can't out Pizza the Hut. No, absolutely. Uh, they you like sort of seized parts of capitalism that work well, but seizing the means for a very different end, um, which I find quite interesting. It's really weird to read this book. Just thinking about this right now, it's weird to read this book in the light of like the last Soviet year leader doing a Pizza Hut commercial. 
Yeah. You wonder what Lenin would say. <laughs> About not just that, but like the entirety of the Soviet Union. Yeah. Um, I, we'll, we'll get into this a bit as we read a bit more through it, but I, I see much of a, the Soviet Union to be like just a natural outgrowth of the stuff that he's arguing mm. for in here, which is problematic because the only real successful socialist movements that have taken over governments have been Leninist ones. Mm. And I feel like they all go fairly predictably based on what he outlines here. Yeah. So it's interesting because the one of the major... So I guess there's two major arguments in this book. Revolution is necessary and you must believe in the dictatorship of the proletariat in order to be a Marxist. Mm. You can't have a revolution and then just say, okay, well, now we're going to have a better, nicer parliamentary system. No. No. You have to have the dictatorship of the proletariat. And Lenin is very, very clear about this. And he cites a letter from Marx, um, which gives his interpretation quite a lot of weight. And so this is a quote from Marx in a letter that he wrote. He said, What I did that was new was to prove the following, that class struggle necessarily leads to the dictatorship of the proletariat, that this dictatorship itself constitutes only the transition to the eradication of all classes and to a society without classes. So like, the, the term dictatorship of the proletariat sounds really scary. Like, I don't know, we kind of think of I don't know, North Korea or Robert Mugabe. But it's not really what Lenin's referring to when he says dictatorship of the proletariat. Like, every state is a dictatorship, according to Lenin. Like, Australia is a dictatorship of the bourgeoisie in Lenin's eyes. So he's just saying, we need to seize the state and use it against the bourgeoisie in the same way that the bourgeoisie currently uses it against the proletariat. He's not necessarily saying we need to have some sort of, you know, gulags and labor camps, et cetera, et cetera, although that did happen. But at least in this text, ideally, dictatorship of the proletariat sounds scarier than it actually is. But the argument is that because the bourgeoisie is such a small part of the society, the coercive means to oppress them will be much smaller than what the bourgeoisie needs to oppress the workers because the workers are, are more part of the population. So it, the state will get smaller because they're oppressing less people. And after a generation or so, or he's a bit vague about that, but eventually we'll have people brought up in this new socialist society and there will be no more people to oppress. And so then the coercive instruments of the state, which are the state in Lenin's eyes, they won't be used for anything. They won't be oppressing anyone anymore. So the state will wither away. And this is where you jump off the Lenin train. Yeah, this is where I get off. <laughs> and so why do, you, why do you get off here? I, I just, uh, I see it as him running like face first into Machiavelli. Like I was alluding to earlier when I was going through the kind of like step by step of his basic argument, uh, his appeal for action in this book where you have to have a violent revolution and you have to create a massive concentration of power. Of, as he puts it, um, hang on, let me find the right quote, strict iron discipline backed up by the state power of the armed workers, which if you're thinking about, you know, completely overthrowing your current government and reshaping society, yeah, good idea. Uh, you probably would need that. But and, you know, if you're going to fight off counter-revolutionaries and if you've got to find out, fight off invading forces from other states who have governments who want to also protect their class interests, then, yeah, that is fair enough. I can see why that makes sense to argue for. But the just on Machiavellian terms, the idea that power, once concentrated that much, will kind of go away of its own terms, I don't think is realistic at all. I think that... People don't voluntarily create power vacuums, even if you have this belief, as Lenin does, that, well, no, there's good reasons why this might happen, that the state will wither away. It, concentrations of power like that, there's just too much riding on maintaining it by the people who benefit from it. And there's too much riding on maintaining it just for pure security reasons. I mean, we saw what happened when the Soviet Union collapsed. There was a lot of violence, especially in the Caucasus area just the collapse of kind of state institutions and how, how much crime and crime-based violence there was in Russia itself. But the idea that you can just accumulate that much and it'll go away, I don't buy. I don't think that's possible. I don't think that can happen. 
And I think that if you just look at history, it doesn't bear out. I can see why he argues this from a philosophical perspective. Mm. But I remember telling you this and you said it was, uh, as you might say in freshman philosophy, an argument that's valid but not sound. Yeah, the, the premises make sense. Yeah, the, um, yeah, that makes it makes sense internally. Inter- it's internally coherent, uh, Marxist theory of history. Um, but some of the premises just aren't true. And so I think what you're really saying is that some people just seek power for power's sake. Uh, not even necessarily that. I think, yeah, some people do seek power for power's sake. But also, once in power, even if you have it for some idealistic concern like Lenin does, power has its own concerns. Mm-hmm. Like we read in Machiavelli. You might call me a Machiavellian ideologue <laughs> based on how I'm arguing against Marxism. But I, I, I don't know. I just find it to be essentially true. You don't, when you're going on the kind of grand mission that Lenin wants to do here, which is fundamentally change society and human relations, then you need power to do that, right? Yep. And to follow those, to follow that end then you will have to maintain your power for a long time. But the, main, the maintenance of that power, the very fact of that, is antithetical to the kind of society that he wants to build as the kind of Marxist ideal, right? Sure, sure. Yeah. So rulers have their own morality that's different. I mean, this is, that's Machiavelli's point, right? Mm. That like the morality of the average person is not the morality of the ruler because the ruler has to make decisions that the average person doesn't have to make. Mm. They have to choose you know, between oppressing a certain sect of society in the interest of stability or maintaining civil liberties, just to give one example. Like, their calculus is very, very different. And so once you become a ruler, the decisions that you're faced with are, are quite different and, you, yeah, you can't really just appeal to your moral your moral worldview. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I look, I agree with that. I think that there's, there's a lot of logic to that. And I also do think that, like, Marxism can be a little bit fuzzy on the question of human nature, and I'm not a full-blown Hobbesian, but I, you know, like some people just do seek power for the sake of power. Mm-hmm. And so, once you have a system like the Soviet Union, there will be people who will dress themselves up in the like the socialist iconography and call themselves whatever they want, but really mm-hmm. they're just there to to have power. Yeah, it's kind of like how Viktor Orban, when like the Soviet Union collapsed um, <laughs> in the 90s, like Viktor Orban was out on the streets arguing for more liberalism and now today he's like a famous illiberal like certain people just seek power for power's sake and they just say whatever they want to get to get themselves there and marxism can be a little bit fuzzy on that but there's also i just remembered something from my notes uh it's on top of my criticism it's not just rulers in power that i think don't make this realistic but every power system every power in society what you might call a state or institutions in a state essentially a patronage network. Mm. All states, all institutions act as patronage networks because you're uh, choosing a select few people to benefit yourself and you benefit them in turn. So everybody involved in this situation has mutually benefits from the maintenance of whatever system has been set up. And that's part of his criticism of the bourgeois state. This co-ops people who want to do good by uh, it co-ops, you know, well-meaning Marxists and socialists and what have you, because they join this patronage system within the bourgeois state and bourgeois institutions, and it, it just by na- by nature, it's going to go towards bourgeois ends. And I agree with him on the idea that institutions and patronage networks seek to maintain themselves and potentially expand themselves. What I don't agree with him on is that this is going to be any different under a proletarian patronage network or a proletarian institution. I think institutions and patronage networks in general, regardless of their class character, seek to reproduce themselves, seek to expand themselves, seek to maintain themselves. So it's not just the rulers in power, but it's the people who benefit from those rulers being in power who also try to maintain that state. There's just too much riding on the idea of this current way of doing things, whether that be in pre-revolutionary Russia or post-revolutionary Russia or what have you, for the state to wither away. Yeah. Too many people interested in keeping the way things are currently going, going on. I think that's a very good point. Institutions tend to take on their own logic and institutions want to perpetuate themselves. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, I absolutely, absolutely agree with that. Um, and I, I think another point also is like Lenin's very woolly eyed about, well, we're only going to have to oppress a small number of people and eventually when they have kids and their kids grow up in this new society, they'll no longer have this bourgeois ideology anymore so we won't need to oppress them and eventually there will be no oppression. What that ignores is how this new worker's state can potentially create new enemies mm. through its actions. And that's just, or at least in this text, not addressed at all, but that seemed to be something that, like, you know, the history of the Soviet Union bared out pretty well, like ethnic tensions, um, people who one day were, you know, in the good favours of Stalin and then the next day they weren't. And so the state, with this level of concentration of power, can create new enemies that will then need to be oppressed. So, yeah, there's no consideration given to that at all in the text. Yeah, yeah, because he just assumes that, well, this is going to wither away. There's no... Like we said, there's a real faith-based element to this. He quotes Marx and Engels as if he's writing theology yeah. and not political theory. And based on that faith, I feel like he ignores a lot of realities. Absolutely. And, and when we say religious, we also mean there's a sense in which, there's a million-dollar word coming here, that Marxism is eschatological yeah, or eschatological. And eschatology in Christian thinking is like prophesizing the end of the world, mm. right? Um, when is the end times and what will the end times be like? Yeah, more specifically, like when is Christ going to return and take with him up into heaven those people who've stayed true to his message, mm-hmm. right? And this sort of functions in a similar way in Marxism where, you know, human history is wretched and we have to make these horrible decisions, but one day we're going to have a workers' revolution and then we're going to be on the other side of all of this. And there's literally in, this is in the Marx philosophical manuscripts where he says, communism will be the beginning, the true beginning of human history, because all that horrible, nasty oppression stuff, that's all over. And now real human history can begin. And it just feels like, like logically, structurally, the, the cognitive structure of the argument mirrors the Christian way of thinking, well, one day Christ will return and then everything that we've been doing will be worth it because of this. And that, when I say Marxism sounds religious, it's because of that. Yeah, it's yeah, it really does read a lot like like some radical Christian sect, but you just delete the God part. Yeah, you do delete, well, quite literally delete the God part. <laughs> if, you're, if you're a Soviet, you, if you, you, know, you don't want to be openly religious in a communist society. So yeah, delete Send to the gulag, send to the re-education camp, what have you, God. Um, but it's just functioning in the same sort of way that everything we're doing makes sense in light of this transcendental end goal, which is, uh, you know, creating God's, you know, kingdom on earth or creating the communist paradise. It's sort of the same thing. Mm. Yeah, and I don't. I can see again though, like why people had such faith in this. Because, you know, in times where the world is changing very rapidly, ideas about, you know, some sort of deliverance uh, from your current state really take hold. If you just, you know, look historically at times when different religions have popped up or at least different uh, sects within religion and whatnot. And Russia and, you know, or much of Europe around this time was much the same. So I can see why this really took hold, but... I think you just when you insert this kind of stuff into a political project that literally overthrows a government, then I think you're going to run into big issues. Absolutely. I think we're in agreement on the viability of the withering away of the state. Mm. Although that's like, that's communism, right? And so preceding communism is socialism. And I think we should say a little bit about how Lenin envisages that will work. Right. And so what he draws on here is the Paris Commune, which I like, confess to not knowing much about. Um, but what he takes from the Paris Commune is that um, all the elected officials, well, so every government official, every bureaucrat was elected, and they were also subject to recall. So you didn't have to wait for the next election to get rid of them. You could recall them at any point. 
and all the government officials were paid, in Lenin's words, a workman's salary. So there wasn't this creation of this like bureaucratic ruling class. Everyone was, all these bureaucrats were paid the same as the average worker. And Lenin has some interesting reasoning about why he thinks this is feasible, and that's because, again, Marxism has a lot of faith in human technology and machinery. And Lenin argues, well, it used to be really hard to run the state, but now, thanks to the Industrial Revolution and typewriters, um, actually administration's quite easy. And anyone with a basic level of literacy can do these things. It's all a matter of filing and storing, in his words. So these bureaucrats don't need to be paid really high wages. We can just have people doing them for a worker's salary. Uh, but that's about as much detail as he gives on how socialism will work. Yeah. And I feel like there's there's a real kind of like mythological sense of the Paris Commune, at least in the way that he sees it. Like this was one best prior attempt at deliverance. So we need to look at how every aspect of how this worked. This isn't going on what you said, but it's just something I want to kind of pick apart uh, regarding it. He's talking about the reasons that the Paris Commune fell. And as a bit of context to the Paris Commune, it happens during the Franco-Prussian War in the 1870s. Uh, France was being led by Napoleon III. He was the nephew of Napoleon. And I'm not too flash on the political history of why he decided this, but he thought, well, I'm just going to go invade Prussia. Prussia was the kind of premier lands and military power of Europe and continental Europe at the time. So he goes to invade Prussia and he gets wrecked. Like it's a monumental failure uh, to the point where the Prussian army is surrounding Paris and local conditions uh, in Paris were so bad because of the shortages due to the war and heavy taxation and whatnot, uh, very bad working conditions, that the workers rose up and they had this Paris Commune, which is, you know, this attempt at a socialist or communist commune in the middle of Paris during this war. And he says that one reason the Paris Commune, this is Lenin, failed, was that it didn't, quote, suppress the bourgeoisie and crush... Uh, their resistance with sufficient sufficient determination. So one of the reasons they failed is because they just didn't fight the bourgeoisie hard enough. And I just, I don't know, man, it, like he's kind of forgetting the whole part where there were like two literal armies nearby and you're doing an insurrection right next to them and they both have an interest in seeing you crushed and you just go, you, you just should have killed more shopkeepers, bro. Like, <laughs> like, I, don't, I don't know what that point is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's It sort of strikes me. I and mean, you see this sort of logic today um, when something is done and it doesn't work. There's those people who say, well, clearly that didn't work. And then there's those people who say, no, 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 no. We never actually did that well enough. Yeah, this is so common with uh, socialists you know, regarding to the yeah prior socialist political projects. We just need to do it more. Yeah, you need to try harder at it. Which trying harder? What does that really mean? Yeah, uh, it's yeah, it's it's you get this sort of argumentation all the time. So we've just had one of the greatest water breaks ever. We were getting really thirsty in this incredibly hot studio, and now we're back ready to discuss more Lenin. Specifically, you know, he starts off the book complaining about opportunists, who are the socialists who cooperate with the bourgeoisie by taking up seats in parliament. But another enemy of Lenin, who is a victim of his sarcastic invective all throughout this book, are anarchists. Lenin does not like anarchists. No, he does not like them at all. I find it really funny. Yeah, because <laughs> I also don't like anarchists. <laughs> if you're an anarchist listening to this podcast, uh, look, just just stop listening. <laughs> <laughs> Delete the pod, bro. <laughs> yeah, I. he just spends so... I don't want to say he spends so much time on it, but every time he mentions anarchists, it's just to pay out on them, and I find it very funny. It's like, by the way, have I told you how much I hate anarchists yet in this chapter? No? Well, fuck anarchists. Yeah. <laughs> He, he does have a good reason for it where he's like, look, we shouldn't, we don't really differ, you know, us Bolsheviks. We don't differ from anarchists so much in uh, the aim mm. uh, of our projects. You know, they both want to build some society where there's no coercive state and people are free and equal to do whatever they like. But 
he just finds the anarchist's method of, no, we just need to get rid of the state like right now. We just need to get rid of it now and we'll be all good. Mm. He views that. I, I feel like the Machiavellian part of Lenin comes in. He's like, that's not going to do anything. Yeah. Like that's, you will not achieve anything by doing that at all. This is such a dumb project. They just be like, we just need to get rid of the institutions, all of them. So yeah. Like now, like we'll just do it now, bro. Just get rid of the state just and then and then we'll be, oh, you know, having Kumbaya yeah. together. No, absolutely not. Yeah. <laughs> like he, he starts off by say, like getting, like correcting a common misunderstanding, which I have to admit I shared, was that anarchists hate the state and Marxists love the state. He's like, no, Marxists do not love the state. It's a necessary evil, if you will. We also agree with the anarchists that, yeah, we want to get rid of the state. But you you have to first seize the state and then you have to oppress the bourgeoisie. We've been saying you need to turn the apparatus against the bourgeoisie. Not, as Alex has been saying, like the anarchist view, seize the state and then just dismantle it and go home and go to your little commune or whatever. I don't know how, the, how anarchists imagine setting up society, going to your little syndicalist collective reading group, yeah. like however they want to run society. It's like, no, that's not going to work because the counter-revolutionaries ca- will just spring on you the second you do that. And if you don't have a, you know, a, a coercive apparatus, they will. Mm. Like it's just complete, it's complete nonsense. And I think a, like, you know, a less, you know, a more charitable counter-argument to this is, well, like you can get rid of the state but everyone in that society will have grown up internalizing the ideology of that capitalist society. So it's going to take a l- quite a while, possibly a few generations, of living in a socialist society before people are ready ideologically to live without the state. And so the anarchist idea that you can just get rid of the state is is deluded because people grew up and have internalized so much of the bourgeois and capitalist worldview and think of themselves in terms of competitive, selfish individuals. And if you if you just get rid of the state and let that go, you won't get a nice anarchist utopia. You'll get some crazy libertarian nightmare. Yeah, I just I, this, the one thing I really do enjoy about Lenin is just how ready he is to just spit invective at other people. Yeah. He just loves getting really polemical and being like, no, here's why you suck and I'm actually right. Like, yeah. This is why you're such a dumbass, dude. You're so <laughs> dumb. You suck, bro. Yeah. <laughs> he, he just loves doing it through the whole text. He's really <laughs> sassy and really sarcastic. And <laughs> it even comes across in the, tra- in like, it's translated, but it still comes across. He, he would have been a funny guy. Yeah, no, for sure. But it is, uh, he, he would be a very annoying person to disagree with. Yeah, yeah, he definitely would have been annoying. Absolutely. Um, look, I feel like we should we should start winding this episode down by just discussing, in a more general sense, like our views on Marxism in general and Marxist Leninism, because I think this is a podcast where there will be some people who will find it very interesting. Um, and take on board what we have to say. But there will be some people who will have clicked on this because they are Leninists or because they're Marxists. And they'll, they won't be happy with the fact that we've basically not agreed with a lot of it. And there'll also be liberals who think, well, Lenin was a dictator and how can you take anything that he says seriously? Like, communism is repugnant. Like, you know, that sort of moralistic liberal view. Um, and, you know, went on either of those things. So I... Like, what is your relationship now to to Marxism, and how do you how do you see your your p- political thinking? Mm. Well, in in like a normative sense, I no, I I disagree with it. I I wouldn't call myself a Marxist in the sense of like uh, thinking it a valuable political or like a viable political project, um, at least in the terms that Lenin uh, outlines here, but. As an analytical methods, you know, there's you know there's Marxism as the political project, and there's Marxism as the analytical method of like the means of looking at society and looking at history and understanding what's going on. I think that's very useful, and I think it's very helpful. And I think Marx is an incredibly intelligent man who created a very intelligent way of looking at things. So for that, I think it's valuable, but I couldn't 
call myself someone who subscribes to it in any sense of describing who I am or the way I think about the world, really. Mm, that makes complete sense. I Look, I, I'm the same in that I find Marxism to be an incredibly invaluable analytic tool, specifically for its analysis of capitalism. And I think there's so much about contemporary capitalism when you read Marx and you look at what's going on today and you go, yep, that makes sense. And in fact, in many cases, Marx predicted it. And so here I'm talking about the Marxist argument that capitalism is irrational. I mean, that's his main critique. It's, it's irrational. And so you look at like, we have a situation where some people have their fifth and sixth investment property, but we have homeless people. We have people pouring their unearned money into investments that have no social benefit, like Bitcoin and other digital currencies or, you know, so many startups you lose count that produce no societal value. And yet we have all these things that are crying out for investment, like education, scientific research, etc. So I think the Marxist critique that capitalism, once it reaches a certain point, is fantastic at creating wealth, but it's very, very bad at deciding where to put it. And that will start to become self-defeating because the opportunities for productive investment, renewable energy, scientific research, education, they won't be invested in by the capitalist system. And so growth will start to slow down. And that is what we're seeing today. Where, you know, we used to have double-digit growth rates in the West and the developed world. And now it's like 2 3% if you're lucky. So I think Marxism can explain a lot about our contemporary economic malaise. And look, I think his point about alienation and how most people feel at work is just spot on. Like most people don't like their job and they sort of get home and they have this brain fade and they just can't really do anything and they just sit there watching reality TV. Not not to, you know, chastise them for it. It's because the modern workplace is mind-numbing and the population doesn't have the capacity to, to engage in politics or art or what have you. So I think those two elements of Marxism... I agree with wholeheartedly and I still would, you know, I am a socialist and I would in some sense, in some sense, call myself a Marxist too, because I accept those premises. But yeah, I don't know if I go all the way into communism. I don't think that, I don't think it's desirable to have the withering away of a state. I mean, how, how would you have managed a global pandemic in the absence of strong states. That doesn't, that doesn't make any sense to me. As Lenin says, people just have internalised doing the bureaucratic work of a state. Yeah, nah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, nah. I mean, like, the argument that, like, the bureaucracy can be handled by people who are just literate mm. and not specialists on a workman's wage, yeah, no, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't buy that at all. Yeah, me neither. But I, I, I agree with a lot of what you said there in terms of, like, Marx's critiques are still standing standing even more today than they used to in some cases, mm. like the like irrationality of capitalism. And a bit of a hint into my own life, I work as a teacher. And last year on my placement, I taught a unit on the Industrial Revolution to some year nines. And I was looking through the slides and the lessons that other teachers used. They looking at the Industrial Revolution and there was some of it that was like looking at how having these new productive forces brought about a lot of social and political change. But a lot of it was, damn, look at this invention. Isn't this steam engine just like really cool? And I'm like, <laughs> there was no real depth of explanation in anything there. And I feel like having the Marxist kind of historical base that you get through reading Marx and you get through being exposed to Marxist history really helped me understand that more than the other teachers who were teaching this mm. compared to me who was just, you know, a student on placement. Like I, I knew the Industrial Revolution better than them. And I think that's in large part because of the sort of analytical method that you gain through Marxism. That's a really interesting point. I mentioned earlier Eric Hobsbawm, who is a great historian, and I was reading his uh, Age of Capital um, no, sorry, Age of Revolution, which is before the Age of Capital. It's his first book in a four-part series. Mm. And that's explaining what he calls the Twin Revolution, which is the Industrial Revolution and the French Revolution. And he's talking about the Industrial Revolution in England where it first happened. And he says the reason it happened uh, was because of the invention of the steam engine, right? And so 
one of the major indices of how developed a country is, is its level of steel production, right? And that really generates all the capacity and the industrial know-how that you need to do a lot of other things. Can you produce and smelt steel? But there wasn't demand for that in Europe. So there, w- there weren't these big industrial smelters yet. But when the steam engine was developed and they started laying railroads, they needed the steel to, lay, to, to, to put down the railroads across the, across the United Kingdom. So that created the demand for the steel. And so then you had these big steel factories produced. And then they were able to raise enough capital to get the sophisticated machinery to do other things as well. Mm-hmm. So he argues that like the demand created from that inve- invention spurred the Industrial Revolution and spurred industrial factories. And it's just that way of looking at history that is materialist, that looks at the interplay between technology and society, that just, I find it's very illuminating. Right. Yeah. And you can take it even further back along that train as well. I think he, I I read the industrial revolution section of the book. I didn't read the French revolution section. It was actually in preparation for that class, uh, United class I was teaching. And he mentions something about the international, you know, overseas cloth trade, the textile trade between Europe and Asia. He said that traditionally that would go through Persia and would go through the Ottoman Empire. But when I think Portugal and or Spain discovered the route to Asia around Africa, then suddenly there was this massive influx of these materials so they could undercut the Ottomans, they could undercut Persia. And then Western European powers got to the point where they were like, we're spending a lot of money and it's really dangerous and, you know, hard to go on these, you know, wooden ship journeys to like the other fucking side of the world in the 15 and 1600s. So let's try to set up some colonies over here in this place, America, we just found. So then they set up these colonies where they start getting raw materials and, you know, the slave trade is a massive part of this as well because that provided the labour. So suddenly you can not only undercut the whole Ottomans and Persia taking a cut of that trade route, you can undercut even having to pay people in India and China and whatnot for those textiles. So you have all these you know, raw materials that are flowing into England. And at the same time this is happening, there's uh, advances in agricultural understanding and agricultural technology. And there's the enclosure of the commons. So pretty much what happened there is that uh, a bunch of people get pushed into cities at the same time as there's all these raw materials coming in. Mm. So you put all that together with the invention of the steam engine and like, boom, yeah, you get an industrial revolution. Less people working on the farms, more people working in the cities and in factories. Yeah. And that's, I feel like if you don't take the sort of Marxist kind of materialist sort of like economic view of history and how history develops, you're not going to pick up on that. And I feel like that, I'm not sure how else you really could view the Industrial Revolution apart from the sort of... I don't know. What do you mean, man? These like enlightened dudes just went to Harvard and got their MBA and they came up with like better business strategies. That's that's <laughs> yeah. why the Industrial Revolution happened. It was like they just got more efficient, bro. That's true. That's I, didn't, I didn't think of it like that. Yeah. Now you, you say it like that. Yeah. <laughs> Can't believe you never thought of it that way before. <laughs> yeah. But all kidding aside, I mean, that is like how a lot of people view history. Is it's In Marxism, it's it's called idealism. It's like explaining things by like, the ideas people had, whereas Marx's whole point was, well, ideas tend to reflect society, mm-hmm. not the other way around. Yeah, um, People became enlightened because of economic forces. <laughs> they didn't become enlightened and then create all this stuff. It was actually the economic transition that occurred first, uh, which, as Alex has explained, you know, was related to the process of colonisation. So, look, there is a lot to be said for Marxism analytically, especially in the field of history. Yeah. No, 100%. I completely agree. But you were asking where I stand politically as well, and you said that you still would call yourself a socialist and a Marxist. I, I repudiate any, any and all labels. <laughs> I've gone through a big process of <laughs> doubt recently. I don't know what the hell. I'm just going to keep vibing. Alex is uh, yeah, he's a blank slate at the moment. I've gone full blank slate. Yeah. I'm completely John Locke mode. 
John, John Locke mode. Yeah. yeah. Well, on that note, uh, we're not going to read John Locke next because we're not sadomasochists, um, but we are going to read Immanuel Kant's What is Enlightenment? Mm-hmm. And then after that, we're going to read uh, Rousseau's The Social Contract. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are going to be two good ones. And please send in recommendations if you have any. Yeah, so, well, the reason we're doing Rousseau is because someone messaged me on Instagram and requested Rousseau. So we do take this stuff seriously, guys. We will, we know, we, we won't read the 500-page book, but Social Contract is pretty short, so we'll read that one. <laughs> but, yeah, do send in recommendations because we're very happy to, con- to consider, at, consider that in our podcast plan going forward. We will read the complete works of Hegel if you request it. Yeah, someone dare us to read Phenomenology of Spirit. That's that's the only thing standing between me and picking up that book. The next episode will come out in two years. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> all right. Thanks for listening, guys. We hope you're all Marxist-Leninist now. Thank Peace, you. everyone.